This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on Thursday the 10th of March. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue and dominate the world's news. There's still no end in sight for the conflict. Former Speaker of the House of Commons John Burko was found to be a serial bully and liar by an independent inquiry. And the Winter Paralympics continued. In the past two weeks, we've thought about the invasion of Ukraine and we'll continue to do so this week. We'll be thinking about the morality of resistance, cultural boycotts and whether and how other things matter in the face of an event of such huge significance. We'll also see what else we get on to, as always. Joining me to discuss this week's news, we have Julian Bagini, philosopher and man of letters. Um, Julian's back again for another chat and he's the academic director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Good to have you with us, Julian. Nice to be back, Simon. And we've got two new guests, uh, Gerald Lang, who's Associate Professor at the University of Leeds. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. And Sophie Grace Chapel, who's Professor at the Open University. Good morning, good morning. Uh, Thanks all three of you for joining us. As I've said, we've discussed the war in Ukraine previously, but uh, I think we must return to it. The war, as we know, is horrific and it raises very difficult problems. Um, Although a number of people have been in touch with me to say how they found our discussions on previous episodes helpful in trying to make sense of what's happening. I want to return in particular to a topic we touched on before. So last week, we were talking a little about a very difficult subject, um, the issue of why it's morally permissible to resist occupation and when it might be better not to resist. Gerald, uh, you had some follow-up thoughts uh, about this, questioning some of the things that we were talking about last week. So can I turn to you first to, to kick things yes. off for us? Yes. Um, so um, Helen Froh was talking about the uh, reasonable prospect of success condition in, in just war theory. And the idea is if the odds are hopeless, you, you shouldn't fight. Just war theory instructs you not to fight. I think the truth is complicated here. If we look at a defensive situation, uh, we don't generally insist that defensive violence against an aggressor be successful in order to be justified. And we can just leave aside the fact that defender and aggressor are mismatched. Let's say they're not mismatched, but that the defender doesn't prevail anyway. We don't think that because the defensive violence was unsuccessful, that it wasn't justifiable. Um, So I think we should take the lesson to be, if the sides are mismatched, defensive violence is also going to be justifiable, or at least it won't stop being justifiable just because it's unsuccessful and just because it's unlikely to be successful. Um, But I guess the truth in the theory might be this. If you put up resistance, if you maintain resistance, then it becomes more likely that the conflict will escalate and will endanger civilians who hadn't been previously put in danger. And there might also be a distinction, I think, between um, the claim that it's permissible for defenders to defend themselves, even when uh, they have a very low chance of prevailing, and they're being commanded to fight. That might be a relevant distinction too. And the the the, the feeling I get in the Ukraine is that Zelensky is enjoying 
his troops to fight. He's encouraging them to fight. Um, so that, that 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 might make it permissible. Yeah, thanks. So perhaps, perhaps I'll, I'll come in here, then I'll bring uh, Julian and Sophie Grace in to see what, what they said. Yeah, so I was reflecting on on that discussion last week as I was editing, really, to, to publish the episode. And and that thought about defence occurred to me. I mean, I'm no just war war theorist, and, and, and you and, and Helen will know far more than, than I would. But I, I mean, I could see the point that she was making, and she certainly was saying we're not at that point right now. Although I will say I've been, I've been watching the news, and, and, and certainly there are some mayors who are actually in real time having to make that highly difficult decision about how much at least overt resistance they they, they put up to, to to the Russians to try to keep electricity running and and, and to, to, to save their fellow citizens. So it is, it is a highly difficult situation. But I did think that there's an obvious clash here, right? So if I'm someone who's who's stayed behind to protect a village and elderly residents, or I'm just defending myself, even if there's the broader consequences of, you know, resistance where things might escalate, as you say, Gerald, surely there's got to be some, it's morally permissible for me to defend myself and to defend the people who are close to me and to defend my village. And there's just a really complicated, complex situation, just a big clash, right? So it, it depends what we're saying, you know, where what we mean by a situation, the situation might be very local, I'm defending myself right now, this minute, or it might be the situation of defending the country and lots of these little individual situations causing that very dangerous escalation. And it's, it's just going to be very complicated then to judge what's morally right. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people who write about this think that if escalation is foreseeable, it's not just the aggressor we should blame. We can also hold the defender to be responsible if the defender has acted in such a way as to make escalation foreseeable. And I must admit, I'm not too keen on that argument. And I tend to think that the uh, that the burdens of responsibility fall on the aggressor. However, it's complicated here because uh, the Ukrainian authorities and the army are trying to protect civilians. And civilians will be in harm's way if the fighting continues. So that, 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 that that's a very difficult uh, consideration that needs to be factored in. Yeah, in fact, and, and just this morning we're seeing the news of the shelling of a maternity hospital in, in Mariupol. I mean, it's right. clear they have to resist at the moment. Um, Julian, Sophie, Grace, do you want to do you want to come in on, on any of this? Well, I, I think one thing that's important here is uh, to define precisely what we mean by success. Um, there's winning the war, and there's uh, winning this particular encounter, and there's protecting my town, and there's protecting my vegetable patch and my chickens. Um, those are all things that might be conceivably objects of military success. And I, I think it's difficult to say that we can lay down a general... I mean, obviously, there's a principle about action. Don't make futile attempts. Clearly, that is a good principle about action, which anyone who's practically rational will endorse. Don't make futile attempts. But there's all kinds of things that you might be attempting to do, and it depends a lot on what that is. So that's one thought I had. Two other thoughts I had. First of all, um, it seems to me that resistance is the, the key notion in all this. Not necessarily armed resistance, but resistance. And there are all sorts of ways in which you might resist. And one of the, one of the most obvious ones is actually the power of words. Words are very powerful in war. There's a famous episode in the Greek historians where Philip of Macedon approaches the city of Sparta and sends them a threatening message. If I conquer your city, I will take your children's slaves. I will massacre every male in the city. I will burn your vineyards to the ground. To which the Spartans just replied, if. 
And the power of words, the power of jokes, we've already seen this in the Ukraine war. So the signs that say straight ahead, fuck off, left, fuck off to hell, right, fuck off back to Russia. Um, that is a powerful form of resistance doing that, a really powerful form of resistance. And I think the core notion here is resistance, not armed resistance. The third thing I wanted to say was, who's deciding? I went to a play and the theme of the play was we have a power station, nuclear power station, which has gone critical. We need to send people in to sort it out. And they're looking for volunteers who are over the age of 60, precisely because those people have already had a good life. Um, if they get cancer and die of it in the next 10 years, well, they might have died anyway at that age because, you know, you're getting old, your chances of mortality are greater. So who's making the decision about whether to do something that someone else might regard as a futile act of resistance? If I'm 70 or 80 and I say, sod it, I'm not going to be just another logistical problem. Give me a rifle. I'm going to take some down with me. I don't see why... I, I can't think, I can't put a particular number on the age, but after a certain age, I think you have the right to do that. It's your life. You've decided this is the right time to die or a time where you no longer care if you do die. You've had a good life. You're going to go out and fight for your grandchildren. And if you die, too bad. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot that has been said that I think raises issues. I'm not into arguments that even futile action is, is always morally objectionable. I mean, I think most people believe there are things worth dying for, Right. And they, they mean worth dying for partly you know, to protect them, you know, die to protect their children. But I think there are certain values, you know, that we might want to die for, even if we go down with them, you know, that it, it'd be so awful to allow certain evils to prevail that actually, even though you have no um, realistic way of making them prevail, it would be better to, to die than to, to let them prevail. So that's, that's one thought. But I think in general, I mean, one thing that this discussion really makes me think about is... You know, what, what, what these things like just war theory and these principles we have, it almost feels sometimes there's a danger almost being distasteful to have a discussion at a highly conceptual level when we know that in practice every situation is different. And I, I don't think any of these theories capture everything. They're not algorithms. You can't just apply it and say, is this the right thing to do? What does just war theory say? In fact, what you see a lot in this in this conflict in terms of philosophers' responses is the kind of thing that you've been talking about. People are saying, how has this conflict made us think about just war theory and if it's exactly right? You know, so in in a sense we're we're applying war to the theory and not not the other way around in some ways. And the idea of, you know, the, both just war theory, there's also a, a parallel here with theories around civil disobedience. And this was on my mind because last year we had a talk in the Royal Institute of Philosophy uh, lecture series from, from Joseph Chan and Brian Wong. Now, Joseph Chan is based in Hong Kong. So this has a very, very particular resonance. And they were talking about civil disobedience. And, and they were saying, you know, classic principles of civil, civil disobedience, like those of just war, um, give conditions on likelihood of success. And they also place conditions on, on, on the, the methods you can use. And they were arguing that there are forms of what you might call uncivil disobedience, which in extreme circumstances are highly morally justified. If you're up against an oppressor like, as strong as you know, the Chinese government, you have, your chances of success are really almost zero, aren't they? And also saying, well, you know, please just use nonviolent methods, you know, resort to the normal channels. The normal channels just don't exist. And they were making the case that, at the very least, this even even if this was to be punished, that what they were arguing for actually was that the way in which these things should be punished as crime should be mitigated by these circumstances. And I think that kind of shows that, from a moral point of view, even if you don't think this is, you know, totally morally okay, 
it's it's not in the same league. So I, I, I think that, you know, we've got to be a bit careful about bringing our theories to these problems um, and trying to just apply them because reality is so much, so much messier and so much more instructive. I do think in lots of these moral issues, you learn most by really paying attention to what's happening primarily and the theory comes second. Yeah, just a thought on that, Julian, then I'll bring uh, Gerald in. So uh, just perhaps in in defence. So Helen's take both last week and also in things that she's been writing recently is you don't need just war theory to tell you that something morally bad's happening right now. In fact, she's probably kind of uh, kind of a very, very strong advocate of, of that thought against some, some other people who think about uh, war and peace. Uh, Gerald? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the point I was going to make. It, it, this case doesn't particularly present a headache for just war theory because the Russian aggression was so obvious and so obviously condemnable. You don't need to fish in the waters of just war theory in order to have something morally conclusive uh, to say about it. But I, I agree, Julian, that we shouldn't expect moral theory to be algorithmic, right? So it's not as though we can plug features of our situation into a machine and then crank the handle and then get simple answers uh, that tell us what to do. I mean, I'm, I, I regard myself as semi-theoretical in the sense that there are red lines and we want to understand them because we want to understand ourselves and we want to be able to justify ourselves to other people. And I think that appetite is, is very widely shared, in fact. People take, they take the question of whether they're justified in what they're doing uh, very, very seriously and they seek advice. And moral theories, I think, should be characterised as ways of tidying up of beating into shape the heaps of moral intuitions we have about situations large and small. And and in, in that sense, they, they help us to understand ourselves better. I, I should also add, actually, that just war theory, I mean, it, it, it's got a very ancient lineage, but but it's, it's embedded itself very thoroughly in international law. So if we want to justify ourselves and understand the moral possibilities for different actors in the international order, we're going to be using the law, but the law is informed in in turn by this body of theory. I, I was just going to say, I'm my, my mind is still running on um, the notions of success. And so I'm thinking about those cases where, well, cases like Snake Island, um, I don't need to go back to ancient Greek history again and invoke Leonidas, because Snake Island gives us something similar. But what was success there? I mean, it's I gather it's unclear whether the defenders of Snake Island were killed or not. But does it actually matter whether they died or not? Nonetheless, they have achieved, I think, a remarkable sort of success. Because we won't ever forget, no one who was alive at the time will ever forget how they responded to the order to surrender. And that is success. And it's, it's the kind of thing that the Iliad talks about, um, undying fame, undying glory. Well, that sounds very pretentious and, and windy. But actually, specific examples make good sense of that idea. Um, we tell ourselves stories. We are, we're animals that tell stories. And we tell stories of heroic resistance. The fact that other people made a heroic resistance stiffens our steins, spines. Yeah, and I've, I've been reading quite a few things in that vein over the last two or three weeks, you know, reflecting very much on Ukraine's situation and, and, and the actions that certain people have done. That in fact, in, in, in some respects, in some respects, Putin's regime's already lost because there are so many strong stories and narratives, and the impression of the Ukrainian people is is very, very, very strong and profound. Um, can I take us back then to, to something that, that, that Gerald just said? Uh, take us onto a slightly different 
topic, which is thinking about just war theory or moral theory in general. And, and as Gerald said, it's embedded and continuous with the the, the legal contours that, that that we might be working within. And in fact, that really is pertinent in this case when you're thinking about war crimes, war crimes tribunals. So, I mean, I, we, we were also then thinking about what the experiences might be, as it were, of a particular person defending their village. I'm just thinking, how do those two things mesh, right? And in fact, I'm particularly thinking about Sophie Grace because at the moment I'm reading your new book, right, on on epiphanies and moral experience. I'm just thinking then there, there might be a, some sort of tension there between the the value or the knowledge that we get from those individual examples and then the sort of abstract, generalised moral theory that we then look to, to bring to bear onto the situations like this. And there seems to be some sort of tension there. I'm just wondering if, if we want to just pursue, I mean, Sophie Grace, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I think we, we can't avoid looking for generalistic uh, rules about <clears throat> how to understand the situation in front of us. We're, we're always going to say, well, look, there's a reason why you should do this and shouldn't do that. And the reason is dot, dot, dot. And what goes in the dots is always going to be something which is at least in principle universally applicable. So all I want to say is thinking like that gives you some of the story, but it only gives you some of the story. And it's it's a bit like making a cake. You, you've got the recipe and you've got the process of making it and you, you can't really get there without having either. You, you need to know roughly where you are trying to go and principles, maxims, ideas, generalized ideas about what to do they give you something of that but you know everything depends too upon the particularities of the material that you're working with is is this flour out of date um is this sugar too sticky to make the cake well um are these raisins the right kind of raisins or will they explode in the microwave etc 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 so it's it's a process of combining forms and material and the forms are the abstract generalizations and the material is the particular situations that we have in front of us. And it's an indefinitely unpredictable and complex business, and you just need to be a cook with good judgment. If you are a cook with good judgment, then that massively raises the chances that you'll actually produce an edible cake. But even then, it's not guaranteed. I haven't used that metaphor before. <laughs> you, should, you should stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, any more thoughts on 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 this topic then? Well, well, yeah. I mean, I think that, that that's interesting. Just just talking about having sort of the, how the particular affects these things, and I think that you know these these more the things that you know, Sophie Grace was saying that you say you shouldn't do this because dot dot dot, and these are general principles, and it's it's kind of the status. I'm interested in what the status of those things are. And I think what what they are are kind of like defaults. They're the, they're the thing you assume to be the case unless shown otherwise. But I think it's important to have an openness to them being otherwise. Yeah, in practice, I think there's a lot of uh, the, the sort of you know the tor- torture literature, for example, where people come up with these fanciful thought experiments whereby yes, but if you could save the entire universe by torturing someone, should you do it? I mean, that kind of shows that in 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 principle, if you like torture may not always be wrong in practice i think that's overstated and it's probably dangerous to sort of talk too much about that but i mean just to give another example and again stories are interesting for this because stories really bring things to life um i don't know why i've thought of this but you, you may have seen that film which is probably pressingly old now the good son where macaulay culkin you know of um, home alone fame had his grown-up moment and it's an extraordinary film because it's about a mother whose son is just a monster and the very end of the film spoiler alert 
um, you know, she's in a situation where she actually has to make this choice between saving her son or somebody else's son. Now, you know, the default principle is that a parent has a special responsibility to their own children and that it's part of being a parent that you give that care to them. And, you know, that, that's just what we expect. We don't think someone is cruel for prioritising. We think someone's cruel for, like, you know, deliberately harming another child to, to benefit their own. We don't think a parent is cruel. We think they're actually right to, to put the interest of their own children first and to make that their priority. And the film, basically, over the course of, you know, 90 minutes, presents a rich story which shows you an example of where that is actually the wrong thing to do, where something which is almost always the right thing to do is the wrong thing to do. So I think we should, you know, always be open to that. And so it's, it's seeing these these rules and principles as all other, they're always all other things being equal, right? And But in the world, all other things are, are never equal. Yeah, Gerald. Yeah, so I agree with, with a lot of that. So of course, I think you can learn things from, your exposure to individual situations. So it's not that moral theory, you know, is the book that contains all the insights. And if you're going to develop any moral insights, then you have to be familiar with the contents of that book. That's just not the case. Um, you know, the how things strike us morally, or moral phenomenology, as philosophers sometimes refer to it, uh, that, 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 that's obviously a source of moral theorizing. It feeds in to our, uh, our best systematic account of how our moral thoughts hang together. but and, and I think you're right, Julian, to think that we can think of some of this as a kind of default. There are default settings. Most of the time, you don't need to see yourself in a business of following the rules or heeding the theory. That would be an intolerably stilted, artificial, and, and, and kind of needless way of conducting one's life. But but there are difficult situations and moral theory, I think, can help us to negotiate them more effectively. Here's, here's some of the architecture of how I think this how I think this goes in practice and how, how I know in my own head this goes when I'm deliberating. So you, you have descriptions of possible actions which go something like doing this would be dot dot dot. So for example, I am going to do this because doing this would be giving Simon a nice birthday cake, or I am not going to do this because doing this would be bombing a children's hospital. I think we typically act under the sway, when, when we have time to think at all, we act under the sway of thoughts like that. And all sorts of interesting theoretical and structuring considerations begin to pop out as soon as you think about this a little. So, for example, one very important feature, and I, I think this is maybe just portraying why I'm deeply a deontologist and not a consequentialist, but one very important feature is that negative descriptions, I am not going to do this because dot, 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 are typically less defeasible than positive descriptions. So saying, um, I am going to do this because this is a nice thing to do, there's lots and lots of ways in which that could be defeated. It's much harder. I mean, it's not impossible, of course. It's not impossible to defeat that would be bombing a children's hospital, but it's pretty bloody hard. You need something pretty strong to override that. And I think that's asymmetry. I've always thought that asymmetry is absolutely fundamental to ethics. And if I may go all Thomist, I think it's one of the key things in, in, in um, St. Thomas's ethics. He says, the good is to be pursued and evil is... The good is to be pursued and promoted, and evil is to be avoided, he says. So we go after the good, and we promote it where we can. We make the good happen where we can. But, but that's two ways of describing what you do with the good. 
So the good is kind of optional. There's a kind of inbuilt choice. Do I pursue this or do I just um, respect it? Whereas with the with what's evil, you just avoid it, full stop. Sorry, that was all rather incoherent, but I hope you see where I'm going. There's a kind of choice, choiceworthiness. No, that's the wrong word. There's a kind of optionality about the good in a way that there isn't about what's bad. What's bad, you just avoid. What's good, it might be the right time to avoid, to, to go after it, or it might not. You might just have to display some minimal levels of the respect towards it. That was all really incoherent. Sorry. It wasn't incoherent at all. It was good. It was good. But listen, let's, um, uh, we've, we've kind of, as we always do, we've gone on to lots of other different things. Let's leave that part there and uh, we'll join you again in the next part where we think about cultural boycotts. Welcome back to part two. During the past two weeks, we've seen a lot of activity from countries in response to Russian leaders and businesses. We talked about sanctions last week. We've also seen various cultural boycotts. Um, Gerald, you raised this as something you want to talk about. Yes, I've been noticing that the, the boycotts are taking a kind of soft or cultural form. So Russian sporting teams have been uh, excluded. Uh, Russian athletes excluded. Bolshoi ballet performances have been cancelled. Valery Gergiev was relieved of his post at the Munich Philharmonic Orchestra. And, and actually, I think I, I read only last night that a Tchaikovsky concert uh, scheduled for March has been cancelled by, by the Cardiff Philharmonic Orchestra. So it seems to me that there are different sources for this activity. I mean, the first and, and most obvious one might, be, uh, you know, might draw on the idea of a kind of proxy war. Um, a war that pursues any non-military means necessary to put pressure on a Putin regime. So if innocents get hurt, that's just too bad. Um, anything is justifiable if it has a chance of bringing that regime into further disrepute. But, but I think there are other ideas too, and they're not always carefully uh, disentangled from the proxy war idea. I mean, one of them seems to be about Russians, the status of Russians. And, and the idea here seems to be that there's a kind of collective guilt or responsibility that anyone associated with the Putin regime bears. And here it depends on what the ties or the associations are supposed to be. Uh, I think for some people, if you're in any way a beneficiary of the Putin regime, then you are liable to suffer some costs. And the problem is that just about everyone benefits in some way from the Putin regime simply because political society is better than the absence of political society. So that's the second line of thought. I think the third line of thought says much more about us. We're the kind of people who seek expressive outlets for our rage and dissatisfaction and disappointment and disgust at this war. So these boycotts are a way of getting us noticed as protesters. And it might be that there's something to be said about each of them, but they do seem to be separate. And I think it would be helpful to keep them apart as much as we can. Okay, thanks, Gerald. Uh, Julian, Sophie Grace, any thoughts from, from you on that? Well, I think it is, as Gerald says, all about symbolic actions and expressive actions. And that means that it is a matter of gestures. It's not a matter 
<clears throat> of blanket exclusions. So you, you pick on something with high symbolic value and you deliberately target that to, as they say, send a message. Now, that seems to me entirely legitimate because of the considerations I was talking about before about humans being animals that tell stories. It seems to me important very often to make that kind of marker in the moral ledger. I mean, it's, it's like there are some people whom, if I meet in public life, I would refuse to shake their hands for various reasons, depending on the individual. But that, that doesn't mean that I'm going to cut off their food supply and if I get the chance, deprive them of oxygen. It's a symbolic gesture. And you, you take it to make a point. And so I think that's what a lot of people who think, where will this stop, is a good objection to boycotts, are, are not really onto something at all, because the, the activity is symbolic from the, the bottom up. And failure to understand that is not a mark of a, um, an intelligent critique of what's going on in boycotts. I take the point. But let's say that Tchaikovsky concert hadn't been cancelled. What, what mistake would they be making? Would the question be, oh, I see you're, you're, you're simply playing lip service to the condemnation of the war. If we ask these musicians what they thought about the war, presumably they would condemn it along with just about everyone else. So the question is, why do they need this further symbol in order to you know, validate what they would say if asked? And I do find that a little bit puzzling. And that does, I think, in some cases, look like either self-indulgence or a kind of insecurity just about the ordinary terms of moral condemnation we use. Um, I mean, I haven't you know, selected any particular way of conveying my condemnation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but that's because I think I don't particularly need to. If, if anyone asks me what I think of it, I'll, I'll tell them, and I expect them to believe me. I, it's not. It's not clear that. It's not clear what is gained by the purchase of a new. Outfit. I think the Cardiff thing. You know, paying attention to the particularity, though, because the, the Cardiff case. It's not just a piece of Russian music. It's Tchaikovsky's eighteen twelve overture. Now, in this context, I actually think. Imagine you know, and there were. I think there's a Ukrainian member of the orchestra or, or, or Russian. Imagine you were there, and you were hearing at this particular moment a piece of music which is, you know, it resonates Russian military power. It's got cannon fire in it. It, it does seem to me a deeply inappropriate piece of music for this moment. It's not just about Russia. It's about the particular piece of music, and I think that, and indeed for any moment, I, I, I do. I do anything I can I can to avoid the eighteen twelve overture on yeah. all occasions. But you know, I think so. right. These are these things are uh, symbolic. I think we have to think about. I mean, the eighteen twelve overture is a good example because part of the reason for doing this is actually uh, sort of supposedly uh, one motivation is acts of solidarity with the people who are suffering. And it's asking ourselves, you know, is this going ahead? Is just saying, well, okay, we'll let this go. Is that in any way going to be uh, difficult, hurtful, offensive to the people who are suffering at the moment? And you know, and I think that I think it's everything on it on its on its merits. You know, in terms of team sports, I think again, it's a good reason to not allow Russia because people who say we can keep politics out of sport, it just isn't the case. You know, I mean, history of the Olympics seems to be like the Olympic Committee seems to make uh, systematically decide to award the Olympics to the country that's going to make the most political capital out of it the next occasion. It just <laughs> seems to be a principle. Um, individual sports people, you're right, they're individuals. They don't represent their, their nations. And so therefore, we've got less less reason to do that. But, you know, if you've got someone who, for example, is going to dis has displayed that Z symbol, 
you know, the Z symbol of the Russian um, invasion. You know, what what does that say to people being bombed to see this person being said, it's okay, you're, you're allowed to be a member of, of polite society. And I think that because it's such a fuzzy area, because it's so symbolic, I think that when people demand consistency in this situation, it's one of those situations where the demand for consistency is unreasonable. Um, you can't be perfectly reasonable in this situation. It's all fuzzy and grey areas. And you're going to end up saying, yeah, okay, we let something happen, we didn't let something happen. We ha- don't have a precise justification for that. Because you're, you're making very particular, very messy, very quick decisions. If, if I may bring, if I may wheel in a bit of heavy moral, moral theoretical equipment here, I, I do think, oh, the irony, I, I do think that there is something going on here in the structure of these cases, which is a bit like the asymmetry that I was talking about before between the absolute outness of bad stuff and the optionality of good stuff. I think it is like that here. I think with boycotts, there are very clearly some things that you just must not do, e.g. celebrate Vladimir Putin with 40 high, forty foot high portraits of him behind your orchestra when you're playing the 1812. That's definitely out. But what you do as a positive symbolic gesture to express your solidarity with the victims of the war and the invasion in the Ukraine, what, what you do as a positive gesture is much more optional much more negotiable. It's it's like giving a birthday present. Clearly you shouldn't um you shouldn't smack Simon in the face if it's his birthday. But what kind of present you give him is is a matter of choice. And it's like that with with all symbolic gestures. Giving presents is of course symbolic. But one thing that I think we need to be careful of avoiding is is just straightforward prejudice against Russia and Russianness and just tarring the whole nation with the same brush. And I think there are some dreadful examples in history of just this. So both both the world wars, in the First World War, the royal family had to change their name because it was too German, which in in some ways seems just as bad as, you know, businesses having their windows broken because they got Jewish names. That's dreadful, that people should be targeted in the First World War just for being German. And in the Second World War, Churchill's justification for area bombing of German cities was that they were responsible because they'd voted Hitler in and supported Hitler. And I, I don't think that's acceptable at all. I, I think our target in the Second World War, our enemy, was not the Germans, as Churchill liked to say. It wasn't the Germans. It was the Nazis. And I'd want to say something very similar about the situation with Russia now. Yeah, and, and certainly just on that thought, you know, we were saying quite a bit last week and acknowledging that there are a lot of very brave Russians that we can see in the last two or three weeks who've been protesting or or, or taking other measures to... Um, Navalny is protesting to, against the war from in prison. I mean, absolutely. Stupefyingly brave. Absolutely, completely brave. I mean, just going back to what you were saying, Julian, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right that we we look at um, each situation really on its merit. It's going to be, again, complex and, and messy and there's a lot to negotiate. I mean, in the case of Cardiff, uh, I don't know who it was, the orchestra director or the conductor or whoever it is, has, has said, look, we, we've done this because, as you said, we've got a member of the orchestra who's who's got Ukrainian family and it would just be completely insensitive. But we hope that um, we will be showcasing Russian uh, composers uh, in the summer and the autumn program, but of course, unfortunately, regrettably, typically, and there's been a huge pile on 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 Twitter and other places, kind of condemning this as yet another kind of woke reactionary um, move from the Cardiff Philharmonia, where in fact, really, what they're trying to do is just be sensitive to one of their members. And it seems to me that they've actually got the balance balance just just right there. 
Um, Gerald, did you? Sorry, did you want to come in because we've all been talking over? Yeah, you. I mean, I, I yeah, I'm. I, mean, I find myself in agreement with some of these points, um, but but not others. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm trying to put the point in a delicate way. <laughs> so yes, maybe the 1812 overture. I mean, maybe uh, as Sophie says, it's overdetermined. Uh, <laughs> that should be not on the program, but. Again, I, I mean, I think about this Ukrainian player in, in the Cardiff Phil. Uh, what what if he or she thought that the omission of a Russian work in the concert in March was, it would be a kind gesture of solidarity. But let's say they hadn't taken that gesture. What what, what would they conclude as a result? Um, that, that, that they'd simply not taken advantage of an opportunity to do something apart from saying how sympathetic and sorry they were to convey to other people that they feel horrified by the invasion. It seems to me that that, that, that would be unreasonable. Um, I mean, what, what, once we indulge in talk of these kind of symbolic gestures, then not coming up with them seems to be simply something else that we scold ourselves for. And and that, that seems to me to be potentially dangerous. And I... I, I and I take Sophie's points about you know xenophobia in in the wars and so on, but but, but I think that might just be the the outcome, an outcome not aimed at directly by you know too indulgent an accommodation of these symbolic gestures and, and cultural boycotts and so on. Sooner or later, they are going to involve something like tarring the ordinary Russian with some kind of complicity. Or guilt, and I think that's misleading because really we know what we're targeting. We're targeting Putin and the strongmen in the Kremlin. And the sad fact of the matter is, they're largely insulated from ordinary Russians and are perfectly happy to impose costs and misery on ordinary Russians, as well as locking them up, of course, whenever it suits them. Yeah, I worry that I have that I I've always had, which I don't talk about very much in writing because I. I, I don't think it's a tonic for the troops, but I, I think it's true, and perhaps I should write about it. The the amount of epistemic luck that is involved in the formation of our moral outlooks, I think there's a huge amount. And I think the way humans characteristically operate, like I said before, is we, we tell stories. We tell stories about what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, and that's how we operate. And the one consequence of that is that we become extremely aware of and sensitive to some things and completely blind to other things. And by epistemic luck, I mean the fact that a lot of the beliefs that we form about moral and other matters are beliefs that might well have gone a different way if the circumstances around us, if the evidence that we'd had available to us had been different. And so those beliefs are not very safe beliefs. We form them because we happen to see certain things and we happen not to see certain other things. And in that sense, all our knowledge is under threat from the sheer contingency and randomness of the world that we live in. And so there's epistemic luck, which is that kind of unsafeness in the beliefs we form and the knowledge we think we have. And there's moral luck, which is that we might or might not get placed in situations where we have to make terrible choices. And as I see it, the two are both different aspects of the same deeper phenomenon, namely the phenomenon of luck, which is uh, a subject on which, however, I, I yield to the expertise of my non, my knowledgeable colleague, Gerald. And I, I read the Patriarch Kirill's sermon the other day in which he supports the war and says that what the heroic Putin is fighting is is uh, 
um, gay pride parades in the West. It's all about liberating Russia from gay pride parades, apparently. And I read that and I, I, I like to study documents like that, not out of satirical intent, but because here is someone who presumably is not completely stupid, lives on the same planet as me, has a lot of the same values as me. After all, he and I are both Christians. Yet he and I are completely at odds over this particular moral issue and no doubt many others. And how does that happen? I'm, I'm very interested in the, the epistemic luck behind the formation of our views and the way we just completely miss morally important material until it's too late or, or not even when it is too late. We, we still don't see it. And I, I think back to that horrifying photograph in the press of the Syrian refugee child who washed up on a beach. And that opened a lot of people's eyes. But you do feel like saying, come on, guys, why weren't your eyes already open? Why couldn't you see that already? And we, we get on these moral bandwagons and we hurtle away in some particular direction. And there may be good stuff that is achieved by taking that moral bandwagon. But the trouble is, we're always on moral bandwagons. I, I don't see how we can not be as human beings. And um, that troubles me a lot from a sceptical point of view, both as a person and as a philosopher. And I don't know what to do about it, except try to be humble. <laughs> well, that's an ongoing campaign. <laughs> that seems right. Be humble. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll possibly get onto this into the next part, but one, one last question then. So we're obviously in, uh, you know, the first few weeks of this particular invasion, but of course, you know, we, we've all been reading that there are lots of antecedents to, to this current invasion in, in, in Ukraine. And so lots of cultural and sporting boycotts have happened right now. At, at what stage and, and how and why do things start levelling off, right? So at what stage might the Cardiff Philharmonia then be putting on Russian music? At, at, at what stage might Russian athletes be competing with the flag of, of Russia behind them in a, in a sporting game. You know, what, 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 what generally can we say about that? Is it, is it ongoing? Is it, is it, is it just a particular time period? What, what, what are the things? Are the things? I, I think that taken as a rhetorical question connects directly with my concern about moral bandwagons, because the realistic answer is these levels of boycotting and symbolic exclusion will go down when the mood changes. It's as simple as that. Yeah. I, I mean, mean some, answer, but I think it's the truth. Some fatigue will set in, uh, and something else will come along to concern us, outrage us, preoccupy us, and then many of these boycotts will be quietly dropped, I should think. And that'll happen even if the Russian troops are are still in the Ukraine. Um, We've already said now, that these things are symbolic, right? And one good reason for them to be weakened is when that symbolic gesture loses its power. So, for example, um, you remember early in the pandemic, there was the, you know, the clapping for NHS staff. Now, when that first happened, I found that actually really, really moving. I thought it was very, very moving. But it just lost its symbolic power as time went on. And in the end, actually came to seem very, very empty because people were clapping and feeling good about it, whereas actually they should have been sort of, you know, uh, the government was just, in my view, conducting policies which were 
bad for the health of the nation, bad for the nurses, bad for the doctors, and the clapping seemed hollow. So, you know, symbols lose their power over time anyway, and that's one good reason why you, you stop doing them. I, I would, though, I do want to stress, though, that I, d- I don't think it's about not playing Russian music. I do think the 1812 Overture is a very particular piece of music with a very particular kind of resonance, right? Okay. But, yeah, so they lose their power for that reason. On the other hand, I think sometimes... Um, to the extent that these boycotts uh, have more than merely symbolic power. And I, I think the extent, particularly with sport, where people use sporting events to build national prestige and status as a way of signalling, look, we're, we're on the world stage. I think there are very good reasons for continuing with, you know, not allowing the Russian state to take any reflective glory in its sporting achievements until such time as this whole thing is completely over. So that has a slightly different um, aspect to it. Well, listen, um, that that's really interesting. And I think perhaps those thoughts and those examples take us on into our next segment. So let's just take a pause and then we'll come back into the next part when we think about things mattering. <music> And welcome back. Understandably, much of the world's news has focused on Ukraine. We've done so in the podcast as well. Um, What's happening in Ukraine clearly matters hugely, not just for the horrors we see, but the possible ramifications of the entire conflict. In the face of this, though, does it mean that other significant events matter less? We were just giving some examples in the previous part. Julian, do you want to start us off here? Yeah, I think this question of like relative importance is really difficult, actually. Uh, I love that Douglas Adams uh, thing in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where uh, the guy who's, who's, who gets so sick of his wife telling him to put things in perspective, that he builds a machine which, if you enter in it, allows you to perceive your own importance from the perspective of the universe. And this is the only machine in the world capable of destroying your soul. Um, and, 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 and there is something, I think, really, as so often with Douglas Adams, there's something really profound he's pointing to there, which if you're going to say, well, you know, in the grand scheme of things, what really matters, then the answer is nothing really matters. In the grand scheme of things, you might say it doesn't matter that people are being bombed to smithereens in, in Ukraine. The universe doesn't care. It's a blink in history, all this kind of thing, which is, which is kind of a grotesque thought, but that's kind of like where you end up if you insist that you're going to grade importance on a cosmic scale. So, so, so significance is always relative. So I think that, that that's true. At the same time, there does seem to be something inappropriate about uh, taking certain things more seriously than that you should do when other things are going on. But again, it's not obvious how that works. So, for example, you know, if you're having trouble with your relationship at the moment and your partner turns around to you and, and says, you know, look, you know, you're, you're not listening to me, you're not here, and you turn around to them and say, look, People are being killed in Ukraine, right? You know, this is so insignificant compared to that. Just get off my back. There's something inappropriate about that. It's a, it's a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really have an easy, easy answer to this. But I think a lot of us struggle with these feelings that we kind of know that certain things are not as important as others and there is this relative thing. And yet it can't follow from that that we simply disregard everything which is less than the most important thing on our radar at the moment. I mean, other examples of the absurdity of that are around things like um, charitable giving. I think this is a part of a problem for the 
effective altruism movement. You know, the effective altruism movement suggests if you're going to give money to charity, you must do it in the most effective way. So, and they give you a list of the 10 most effective charities in the world. But actually, if we, if we all followed that, then no money at all would go to any cause which wasn't one of the most important. You know, no one would make any donations at all to things like art galleries, for goodness sake, you know. And you know, Peter Singer, actually, I interviewed Peter Singer about this uh, many years ago, and he, was, he, he bit that bullet. He said, look, I'm not against art. Art's great, brilliant, but all the time people are dying from malnutrition and avoidable diseases. It is a kind of indulgence to give money to, to art galleries, right? So, look, that's the problem as far as I see it, and, and, um, I, but I'm sure that my colleagues will uh, help us to solve it more than I can. <laughs> yeah, and just a, a thought from me before I bring the, the others in. Uh, I don't think it made the final edit, but last week there was a, an aside when we were talking about Ukraine um, and what's happening. And I did say, yes, no, and, uh, something that, that I've been thinking about in the last two or three weeks is I wonder what's going on in Afghanistan or mm. the Yemen or, you know, and I read a lot about what's been happening in China. We talked about China earlier on. Um, I, I read something about you know the the torture and incarceration that's been happening in 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 China in the last few years. I mean, these things still matter, right? They still matter, even if they're not on the news agenda. As well as the, the examples you you had, Julian, of, of what's going on in your personal life. You know, yet again, the kids haven't put things in the bin. That's just really annoying, but it still kind of matters, right? Because they're yeah. ignoring you. So, so yeah. So working out. I mean, even within. So working out the, the broad spectrum of things. You know. Ha- how they matter and whether we should have a strict ranking, but also just thinking about the news agenda. There are still people dying and being tortured across the world. There's still climate change happening, we, and that matters, right? So, so then how we approach all of these different events and situations, partly without going mad, I think is a, is a very interesting topic. Um, if I just throw one, one more example yeah, on. just before others come in. I mean, you know, we had a um, – I'm, I'm going to be – blatantly partisan at the moment we have a a prime minister who is and you know sue me um a a proven liar he's lied repeatedly in the house of commons and there's documentary evidence of that and he was in very deep hot water before this um war started and now he's kind of off that hook now that seems to me like an injustice it seems like he has used the, the 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 greater problem of the war in ukraine has meant that he has been let off the lesser but really quite serious crime of being an appalling leader. I, I have lots I'd, I'd like to say about Boris Johnson, but I gather this podcast has time limits. Um, <laughs> let, me, let, let, let me come back to this matter of mattering. Um, I'm a little countercultural in UK philosophy because I'm a Christian. And so whilst for a lot of people, the, the natural in, in philosophy in the UK, the natural assumption is that ultimately nothing matters. I think my view is I mean, there's a similarity and a difference here. So the big difference is from other philosophers, I'm much closer to thinking that everything matters than thinking that nothing matters. I, I think of the wonderful line from William Blake, and this is perhaps relevant to Singer, he who would do good must do it in minute particulars. General good is the plea of the scoundrel, the hypocrite and the flatterer. I think that's a marvellous piece of polemic from Blake, and I'm absolutely on board with that. Everything matters. I'm, I'm looking, as you may have noticed, I'm looking out of my window a lot of the time. That's because today uh, the blue tits are particularly busy on the bird feeders in my garden. That matters. That's important. Blue tits matter. 
and the the beauty of the world, the variety of the world, it all matters. It's I just don't think it's true. I mean, it, it doesn't bring intuitively true to me to to say none of this ultimately matters. Yes, it does, and you don't have to be ignorant or in denial of evolutionary science and the, the harsh lessons of zoology, etc., to see beauty there and to see mattering. I think I think it's a real phenomenon. Now that's the big difference. If it is a difference, perhaps it's a difference. From most of my peers in UK philosophy, I, I believe in the end that it's truer to say that everything matters than to say that nothing matters. That's the big difference. What's the similarity? Well, we do all find ourselves in the same practical situation. We're all facing different versions, more or less acute, depending on how much we believe in the reality of the transcendent of value. Different versions of something like the problem of evil, um, the problem of theodicy, the problem of how to say, well, you know, in the face of all this horrible stuff, how do I keep going? How do I go on? How do I carry on asserting the value that I appear to be in contact with? And I, I think there my lesson, uh, the moral I draw from, from that question, the, the conflicts and the puzzles that it arouses, is it's something like defiance. And in a way, I come back here to the business of successful resistance. I'm just defiant in the end. I say, I don't, I don't see how to make sense of this big picture, but I'm bloody well going to make as much sense of I can, as I can of the little stuff, the little beautiful stuff that comes my way. I'm going to stick with that because I can see it matters, I can see it's real, and I can't answer the big puzzles of the universe, but never mind, I've got blue tits in the garden. Can I just come in briefly on that? Because I think I, I actually do, do agree with you about everything mattering in a way. And I think the distinction perhaps I'd like to make is between and this is where we may disagree because you're a Christian, uh, things ultimately mattering and things really mattering, right? I think that you can believe that things really matter without believing that they matter from the point of view of eternity, from the point yeah. of view of a God. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's I think, the mistake people make. They think mattering can only occur at this cosmic level, and that's the wrong place <laughs> to look for it. So I think, you know, for me, I kind of... Actually, funnily enough, I think I have... Um, it's a bit of a tired joke now, but a lot of people say they're, they're spiritual but not religious. And I say I'm kind of religious but not spiritual in the yeah. sense that I kind of believe in having a kind of a religious orientation to the world, despite having a totally imminentist sort of, um, you know, naturalistic worldview. I, I think that there's this sort of reverence and wonder and awe and respect for life we get. But it comes from inhabiting our level of existence it doesn't come from imagining we can see it from from a god's eye or something there, there was a nice article title recently i think the article was by sharon street and because this is going out live i can't just google it where where somebody posed the question in a philosophy journal article title does the difference between mattering and ultimately mattering matter <laughs> and I, I think there's a strong inclination to say no yeah, I mean, these are very interesting thoughts. So, I mean, the, 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 I think there are two original challenges from Julian: the nothing matters challenge, and the some things matter matter more than others, but but, but we're not tracking the relative uh, importance of those concerns. And uh, it seems to me that things can be said in reply to both those challenges. So, uh, as you were suggesting just now, Julian, I think the cosmic test for anything mattering. It's just a wrong test. It, it reminds me of that scene in The Third Man when Harry Lyme is in the sky with his friend Holly and is saying about the people on the ground who are just dots. Uh, you know, w w would anyone really care if any of these dots stop moving forever? 
And the response seems to be, well, you're just at the wrong perspective. You, you think by gaining elevation and seeing everyone from far away that you've acquired some insight into the significance of these barely visible human beings on the ground far below. But, but the lesson we should take instead is that you're too far away to see the value of, of that people actually have. You need to get nearer to them to understand their value. So the cosmic test, I think, is by and large irrelevant to uh, determining what, what reasons we have for caring about the things we care about. But there's a separate challenge about some things mattering more than others. And it's, it's partly for the fairly prosaic reason that we pay attention to the news. And if it's not new, then it's not news. And this is happening now. It's on our screens. It's in our newspapers. It's on radio programs about the horrors of Ukraine. So yes, other concerns that we had up to a couple of weeks ago have in some sense been shelved or displaced. But I don't think that's deeply puzzling because the fact is our concerns aren't merely, they're not merely in the business of tracking value, right? And and we, and we, we can just take you know, the example of things happening in our private life that will be of no relevance to anyone else, but still mattering. Well, they, they matter to me because they're my concerns and the things that matter to Julian are Julian's concerns and to Sophie and to Simon. Again, we, 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 we needn't pretend that my concerns are somehow morally mightier than your concerns just because I'm more consumed by them than you are and vice versa. Just as, you know, my mum isn't a more valuable human being than your mums, right? Um, or my children or my friends are not more valuable human beings than your friends. We, we don't have to tell the story about why we have friends and particular relationships by pretending that there's some sort of scale of value whereby I have no business in being someone's friend unless I can establish that they have more value than a stranger. That's not how it works, and it's not how it should work. So I, I'm inclined to simply deny that our concerns and our cares are always properly regulated by an attention to what has value. There's some sort of, well, it came up earlier, some sort of default connection that's a rough guide to what we might care about and think about and act towards, but it's highly defeasible. And it's defeasible for reasons that can only be, that, that are only visible within the purview of individual perspectives, it seems to me. Yeah, and I, I would like to come in with two comments here. The first is that I think one of the healthiest developments in analytical philosophy in the last 10 or 15 years has been the, the, the sprouting up of a lot of new research on the social. And a question I've been asking a long time um, is why, why, do we, why do we try and go, when we're trying to bridge the is-or gap, why do we try and go straight from microphysics to ethics? That's ridiculous. In between, we've got chemistry, biology, um, ethnology, zoology, uh, sorry, I already said zoology, um, sociology, politics. We've got all those realms in between. Why aren't we looking at them? And thank heavens we are now looking at them. We're not just taking the Democritean picture and trying to atoms in the void and trying to read ethics off it. We are now looking as philosophers at social structures, at mechanisms like trust, 
at the way corporate agency or group agency works. And I think that is long overdue in analytic philosophy. And I can't help commenting that this attention to the phenomenology of the life world is something that the continentals got onto about 60 years ahead of us and good for them. So that's the first comment. I think it's enormously healthy that we focus now on the social more than we used to, because that gives us much more material for thinking about the is or gap and ethical problems, meta-ethical problems. So that's a healthy development. The other thing is there's this famous quote from the Second World War where where some some rather pseudy person was walking past a bomb site during the Blitz, and one of the workers on the on the Blitz on on the bomb site said, "Oi, you." You, Ponce, what are you doing for the war effort then, eh? To which his reply was, I am the culture that you are working to save. And that's an unbearably Poncey thing to say, of course, obviously, and, and deeply egotistical too. And yet there's a kind of truth in it. And the truth in it is this. We, we fight the big battles. We engage with the big concerns precisely in order to have the freedom to choose which concerns we're going to engage with, precisely in order to have the space for the little concerns. And the superfluous is a very necessary thing. We, we need things in our lives that are not just a matter of survival. And so there's an argument for you, for the which I won't be putting to the government, for the value of philosophy. I think that, that point about, you know, that the small things are really mattering, I, I think that's that's so true, because I think that if you look at, you know, people who are risking their lives, saving lives, doing the heroic things. I mean, I do admire them, and I think in lots of ways, they're better people than I am. I agree with that. But but what's the purpose of this? The purpose is to bring peace and good health and education to people so that they can sit in their gardens with a cup of tea looking at the blue tits, right? I mean, (laughs) that is the highest value, and I think that sometimes uh, that's kind of forgotten and, and, and missed unfortunately sometimes because because we, because we rightly admire the people doing the heroic things but what we want we don't want it wouldn't be a tragedy if we lived in a world where such heroism was no longer necessary it would be wonderful one of my favorite browning poems is a grammarian's funeral where the followers of this aged scholar are carrying to his his burial place the body of their their master their teacher and this is someone who spent 80 years thinking about the particles in ancient Greece, the little bits of speech in Greece that are equivalent to our so at the beginning of a sentence or well or er in the middle of a sentence. He spent his whole life thinking about the Greek particles. And that is something to be celebrated because it is a use of freedom to focus on something intrinsically interesting and worthwhile. And yet, in the cosmic scale of things, completely unimportant. I think Gerald has talked about as well about distinguishing between, I might not make this distinction in quite the way you did, Gerald, but the distinction between, you know, uh, what matters to us legitimately as individuals and, and what kind of value things have in any kind of objective scale. I think this, I mean, this is, I think, one of the, the, the things I, I think the utilitarian approach normally gets wrong. I know there are infinite varieties of utilitarian, so one can't overgeneralize, but, you know, you have this, um, this this guy who Peter Singer talks about who donated his kidney and you know he worked out basically that you know he could uh, it was to do with the life calculation but he said if he didn't give his kidney then he would be valuing his own life at a kind of a ridiculous multiple higher than other people's and 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 those sort of utilitarian thoughts come up a lot that you know that if somehow you know I don't send the ten pounds in my pocket to help the poor 
and I instead spend it on a coffee, then I am saying that the moral value of my coffee and my cake is is more important than the lives of other people. And I think it's just not what we're doing when we're making those calculations. We accept the fact, because the point that the value, the moral value of lives and everything is what you get from the, the God's eye perspective. It's an objective thing, but we don't, we're not gods. We don't live from that perspective. We live in the world. We, are, we have relations to things. Things matter to us for those personal reasons. And it's simply, you know, we're, we're not making a mistake, basically. We just, there's just a difference between the way things matter to individuals. And it would be a kind of a awful world, actually, <laughs> if that weren't the case. It'd be an awful world if we all lived as gods where nothing matters to us as individuals and we just judged everything from a purely objective perspective you know we wouldn't be good parents for a start yeah i think i think i think that's right i mean and we, we might be making things easier than they should be for utilitarians by allowing them to co-opt the language of objective because they might say why not be objective um, it's better than being inaccurate or biased but I, I think the point is, and I, I agree with you on this, Julian, even if there are these values um, that, that each of us has and we're going to say that we have the same value, it's not, I agree with you, it's not that if I decide to keep my organ so that five people will die, that I am therefore rating my life as being, you know, as, as kind of five times greater than the value of each of their lives. That, that just seems to me to to involve a mistake. The connection between these values and uh, our actions and our reasons for action are highly mediated. And I think this is something that Sophie Grace is getting at earlier on when she is saying, look at the social world, look at how it's structured. Even if we want to endow each person with a value and say that presumptively we should aim, of course, to minimize death and to maximize outcomes, what reasons we have are highly mediated by other connections we have both to ourselves and to our nearest and dearest. And I think that's something that utilitarians still struggle to accommodate in a convincing way. I mean, most of the time, the message is they'll just about allow us to have family lives and friends, but mainly to allow us to stock up on energy that can then be, you know, used to promote good causes. And that just seems to me to be a highly etiolated view of life and what's valuable about life. Like, like so much in utilitarianism, it's not that it's a falsehood. It is that it is a, a radically um, isolated truth. That's so right. it's, it's not untrue to say that you're taking time off, but that's not the whole truth. And just focusing on the, the time off thought and isolating it from all the other true thoughts that are going in the area is, is missing well, missing pretty much the whole of human life, really. I was watching YouTube clips derived from uh, mobile phones held in the air in, in the streets of Kiev. I was watching footage uh, from a sniper's outpost, and they're on the street. It looks like an ordinary residential area, but they've got sandbags, and there are guys with, with guns, machine guns, and sniper's rifles up at the sandbags, and there's a corner. So you go around the corner and you're, you're protected by a wall. You're behind the wall. And people are going back behind the wall for a smoke or for a coffee, which is literally taking time off. Or they're going back there to watch something. I, I don't know, maybe Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture <laughs> on YouTube, which is also time off. But if you get someone who understands the question in that situation, you say, to them, what, what are you doing here? Why, why are you back here? 
um, is this time off? I think they'll say, yes, it's time off from being in the sniper's position. But I think they might also say, if they reflect, well, you know, actually, I'm not just a soldier. I'm a human being. And this is another thing human beings do. And I'm doing it. And I do a hell of a lot more of it if only the bloody Russians would leave us alone. So I, I think... I think here, as always, it's interesting to watch how utilitarianism gets hold of one true thought and blows that up so it fills the landscape and there's no room for all the other true thoughts. Yeah, perhaps in a in a future episode, I might get some utilitarians and consequentialists on to have a right of reply. Um, <laughs> well, I think you should consider the consequences of doing that. I know. Well, yeah, yeah. perhaps I won't. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very hard to find consequences nowadays never mind um, <laughs> listen and um, thanks everyone perhaps we'll draw things to a close there for that segment which i hope um, really mattered and that brings us to an end of another episode so um i'd like to thank sophie grace julian and gerald for being with us this week and also thanks to you for listening hope you can join us next time for another philosophy takes on the news mm-hmm.